Son of the Most High, Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. Increment 288, I've written sort of a title up here, Manas Ha Archieros, only the archpriest, only the archpriest. This manas, we're going to relate to another word in the Greek text of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, and that's ace, one. One and only, one and alone, one and only. There is a one and only Son of the Most High, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we will begin with prayer. Father, into your hands we entrust our spirit. If necessary, we ask that you will renew a right spirit in us so that we may entrust to you a right spirit for the communication, the perception, the reception, the assimilation of your word and for its creative and powerful application in a life and in a livingness by which we become an effective apostolate, an effective diaconate of servants to the living God and effective ambassadors in behalf of Christ. We thank you for this wonderful opportunity. We don't take it for granted. We pray that you'll manifest the truth of your word in freshness and with joy. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Hebrews chapter nine, we'll begin with verse one, as is our custom often to read our translation as we have it so far over and over again to familiarize you with it. Now indeed the first, meaning the first covenant, had associated with it regulations for service. That's what we call the Levitical cultus and a cosmic sanctuary. That has two meanings. It can be a this worldly sanctuary of this creation, but it also can be a cosmic sanctuary for it had universal significance to the Jews at the time. Verse two, a tent was furnished. The first room or compartment in the order of approach to the Holy of Holies was called the Holies, the Holies, simply the Holies, in which was both the lampstand and the table of the presentation of the loaves. Behind the second curtain was a section called the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which held the golden jar of manna, the rod of Aaron that sprouted to depict resurrection, and the tablets of the first covenant. And above the Ark, the winged living beings called the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the place of expiation. We know now that the place of expiation is Jesus Christ and him crucified, the propitiation for the sins of the world, the cherubim of glory, the highest living creatures of the suprahuman kind called angels, totally occupied with, fascinated by, and desirous to study 
that place of expiation, about which things it is not necessary to speak of in detail right now. Here's where I want to begin our exegesis for this day. These things being prepared just so. Please notice it. These things being prepared just so. That is, the furnishings of the tent being placed just right. Tuton or tuton di autus catasquiasmenon. These things prepared just so. Into the first room of the tent, the priests, that's multiple priests, keep entering all the time, performing their service. So there is continual offerings, repeated offerings being made. But into the second compartment, once a year, only the archpriest. What I'm doing here is still interweaving 2 Corinthians with Hebrews in one sense, because in 2 Corinthians 5.14, we have one died for all, and all died, that one who died is this only archpriest. It's related to only the archpriest. And we're speaking, of course, of only the great archpriest, our Lord Jesus Christ, by antitype. Only the archpriest goes, never without blood, or not without blood is okay, which he offers in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. Now this, of course, is a shadow of the substance which is Christ. A shadow does not perfectly, in any way really, perfectly depict the substance. You can't tell the look on the face, you can't tell the color of the flesh, you can't tell the color of the clothing, you can't tell so many details about the substance which casts the shadow by the shadow. The shadow is merely a shadow. And the shadow doesn't cast the substance, the substance casts the shadow. These, the Levitical cultists and the tent of the old covenant is a shadow of the substance which is Christ. And so it doesn't depict the substance perfectly. If it did, it would show that this archpriest is unlike the archpriests of the old covenant, the Levitical archpriests, the sons of Aaron, inasmuch as this archpriest, Jesus, the son of the Most High God, this archpriest did not have to offer blood on behalf of himself, for he knew no sin. Nor did he offer for the sins committed in ignorance by the people, meaning the people of Israel. No, he offered one sacrifice forever for all the sins of all people of all times. Not for our sins only, said John, as a Jewish Christian, but for the sins of the whole world into this second compartment. We've already learned in Hebrews 6.20 that he is in a region beyond this curtain. And we learn in Hebrews 10.20 later on, as we'll see again and again, that that curtain is his flesh that was torn at Calvary. The curtain being torn is a picture of access to the Holy of Holies for all. 
And so this archpriest didn't go in once a year annually. He went in once and for all without repetition. And so again, the shadow is an imperfect, in many ways, an imperfect depiction of the substance. By this, says verse 8, the Holy Spirit is making clear. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He makes clear that the road to the Holy of Holies is not yet disclosed while the first tent has standing. But let's just consider this prepared just so. These things being prepared just so. Let's consider that first clause in verse 6a. These things being prepared just so. The archpriest alone entered into the second compartment. Only the archpriest entered alone into the second compartment of the tent, but only when everything was prepared just so. When all the furniture of the tent had been arranged just so exactly like the pattern shown to Moses on the mountain, according to Exodus 40 and verse 5, which is quoted in Hebrews 8, 5 from the Septuagint. So this is very important, that everything be arranged just so. And this brought to mind what Paul said, in Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of the time came, taught elthane ha pleroma to chronon. When the fullness of time, you'll see these Greek texts in print, in our printed version. In Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time came, you see the connection there when things had been furnished just right, when the fullness of time came, what happened? God sent out his son. The word sent out is used, ex apostello. Apostello is the usual word for sent along with pempo, to be sent on a mission. Ex apostello accentuates the fact that God sent out from his bosom, from him, self, the son. His son. These, be, these things being arranged just so, Hebrews 9, 6, when the fullness of time came, Galatians 4, 4. These things arranged just so corresponds to when the fullness of time came, when by the gracious providence of God, the time and situation of history was just right, when world occurrence had reached a certain crescendo, God sent forth his son. God sent out his son. God sent forth his son, the eternal son of his love the only eternally begotten. God the Father sent him out from his bosom to be born of a woman, to be born under the sin-hijacked law, to be brought forth from the womb of a virgin woman 
into this world so hostile to God, into this present evil age, in order to redeem those under the law, that we would be made God's sons. To be under the law for us is to be under sin in Romans 3.9 because sin had hijacked the law, the old covenant. And so once again, he was brought forth from the womb of a virgin into this world, into this present evil age in order to redeem those under the law in order that we would be made God's sons, receive the adoption as sons of God, which is the promised eschatological privilege in Romans 9.4 of Israel. Just as the archpriest alone entered the second compartment of the tent, when things in the tent were arranged just so, so God's eternal son was born of a woman when the time of history, the situation of history, was just right. The fullness of time in Galatians 4.4 corresponds in turn with to pleromatos ton chiron, the fullness of the times or the seasons, the fullness of the seasons in Ephesians 1.10. And that's the fullness of times when all times become simultaneous, when all epochs become contemporaneous, when all the epochs of human history and all the people who lived in those epochs will be alive in resurrection and live contemporaneously with everyone else who has ever lived. That will be in, in itself a fascinating time in future world. Fullness of times when all times become simultaneous, when all things are finally summed up in God's Messiah, and when God subsequently is all in all. So God truly is the one that is God who affects everything according to the unstoppable resolution of his will, Ephesians 1.11. His will to save all humankind, that is, and to bring everyone to the fullness of the knowledge of the truth that is incarnate in his son, Jesus Christ. Truth has many manifestations, the greatest of which is the incarnate manifestation of truth, the truth that's embodied in Jesus Christ. So I'll say that again, God is truly the one who affects everything according to the, his, the unstoppable resolution of his will. His will is to save all humankind. And so that is an unstoppable resolution. It's something he will do. I will do all my will, says God in Isaiah 46.10. His will is to save all humankind. He will do all that will. He has done all that will from the eternal perspective. His will also is to bring everyone, that's everyone in the human race over the course of all time, to the full knowledge of the truth that is incarnate in his Son, Jesus Christ. So, as there was a day when God sent forth his Son, when everything was just right, 
in the condition of this world. And that doesn't mean everything was just right. It means everything was wrong. But when the time became right, as there was a day when God sent forth his son, as there was a day when the one archpriest alone went into the second tent once and for all, so there will be, when all things are just right in God's view, the time when the great archpriest will appear a second time without having to deal with sin, bringing salvation. Hebrews 9.28 When our great archpriest went into the heavenly tent beyond the veil, Hebrews 6.20, where our hope is anchored, it was with his accomplishment he went in having accomplished something which is a way of saying he went in and not without blood. He went in, and when he did, it was with his accomplishment by which he secured eternal redemption in Hebrews 9.12. Not with the blood of others, that is, sacrificial animals, but with his own blood. Not only for Israel, not only for the church, not only for a limited elect, as if his atoning work was limited, which is blasphemous, but for all the world of humanity, for all of creation. This act of redemption, because of the resurrection, will issue in the alteration of the universal human condition from one of humiliation to one of glory. We await a savior from heaven even the Lord Jesus Christ, who will personally, omnipotently affect this change of condition. A condition, change, or alteration even of our bodies, which I've called before and call again, the PASS, P-A-S-S, permanent alteration of our somatic situation or our somatic condition, we could even say. We await a Savior from heaven, even the Lord Jesus Christ, not Curios Caesar, Curios Christos, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will personally affect, by his omnipotent grace, this change of condition of our bodies, even as he issues each of to each of us and all of us, a soma doxa. This is the permanent alteration of our somatic status, a permanent change of station, if you want to put it in military terms, but a permanent change of somatic status, a permanent alteration of our somatic bodily status to one of a body of glory, also called a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15, 44. Soma Doxa, a body of glory, a spiritual body. As we await our deliverer from heaven, and I'm kind of hovering around Philippians 3.20 to 21 for this. As we await our deliverer from heaven, from beyond the veil where he is now as our forerunner, where he has entered, we are awaiting the ultimate outcome of our adoption, which is the redemption of our bodies from corruption. Romans 8.23, please notice the juxtaposition there of our adoption 
and the redemption of our bodies. The final outcome and the final goal of our adoption as sons is the redemption of our bodies on what is known as the day of redemption. Put Romans 8.23 together with Ephesians 4.30. So in the time in between our redemption and the redemption of our bodies, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. He seals us and we ought to take great care never to grieve him, never to quench the spirit or grieve the spirit. The Lord performs the radical alteration of our bodily condition within the context of his subjection of all things universally under his feet. That again is Philippians 3.21. And that is in accordance with Psalm 110.1 or the Septuagint 109.1. That Psalm 110 is quoted or alluded to at least 20 times in the New Testament. And that includes Hebrews 1.13 and Hebrews 10.13. The permanent alteration of the somatic status of all of humanity, once in Adam, now in Christ, occurs in the context of the apocatastasis when God sends Jesus, who was appointed as Messiah for all, whom heaven must welcome until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke of univocally through the mouth of his holy prophets from time immemorial. That's Acts 3.20 and 21. Until then, the new covenant community are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's called the Spirit of Glory in 1 Peter 4.14, who rests upon the suffering community in this world. He rests upon us as we suffer in this world, a community that is also kept by the power of God, 1 Peter 1.5 and 4.14. Until then, until that time when our great archpriest appears a second time, bringing salvation to all of humanity and awaiting creation. Until then, we endure in the arena of contention called the agona of the time in between. But we endure it with our eyes fixed on Jesus, who was once crowned with a crown of thorns as he endured the cross, but who is now crowned with glory and honor and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Speaking of Psalm 110 in Hebrews 12.2. So let's read it again, Hebrews 9.6, where we are laser-focused. These things being prepared just so, into the first room of the tent, the priests keep entering all the time, performing their service. But into the second compartment, once a year, only the archpriest, manos ho archierios, mano ho archierios, only the archpriest goes, never without blood which he offers in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. By this, the Holy Spirit is making clear that the road to the Holy of Holies is not yet disclosed while the first tent has standing. And we've made an AD application, AD 70 application to that. Now, the next phase of our message after prepared just so then will be one and alone. The day after our Memorial Day message, a 
perspicuous student of the Holy Spirit, who has been a student of the Spirit for many, many years, said to me that if he were to give the message a title, he would have called it Reading Romans with a Greater Light On. Because though I hadn't quoted Romans 5, 1 to 11, chapter and verse, excerpts from it could be detected throughout the message. That observation interested me because I had, in fact, been considering not only excerpts from Romans 5, 1 through 11, especially 5, 10 and 11 in connection with 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21 on reconciliation, but I've also been considering the whole passage of Romans 5 through 8, which is the location of the unchained gospel. Excerpts from Romans chapters 5 through 8 I've been considering for some time in connection with 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21, and in turn in connection with Hebrews 9 as well. So here's where we juxtapose or set next to only the archpriest, monos ho archierus, with one died for all. One died for all. Only the archpriest. One died for all. Manas is only the archpriest, meaning only one. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, we have ace, one, that's not the preposition, but a noun, one, one and only one, we could say in 2 Corinthians 5.14. So here's where we juxtapose only the archpriest, monos ha archierus, with one died for all, es huper panton apathanon. One died in behalf of all. 2 Corinthians 5.14. And for that to be fanned out, we have to see Romans 5 through 8, chapters 5 through 8. Romans was written after 2 Corinthians, but not long after 2 Corinthians. Romans, at least in my view, after studying for a few years, is Paul's final written church epistle. And it was written pretty contemporaneously with 2 Corinthians, but after. So Romans chapters 5 through 8 really fans out the truth that's concentrated in 2 Corinthians 5.14, all of Paul's writings have an intense Christological concentration. And unless you see that intense Christological concentration in all of Paul's writings, you will misinterpret many of his words and misinterpret many of the otherwise difficult sayings of Paul, the difficult things to understand. Even Peter thought they were difficult to understand some things in Paul. But those things are all cleared up when you understand the Christological concentration of his doctrine. And we will be teaching on that in the future, Christological concentration. But in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21 is fanned out. That truth that's concentrated there is fanned out. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 alone, one died for all and all died, is fanned out in Romans 5 through 8, as well as the love of Christ, fanned out in Romans 5 through 8, climaxing with 8, 35 to 39. Manos, for, one, for only, and ace, 
for alone. We have alone and one. One and alone. We're irresistibly drawn to Romans with this word one as it's used in 2 Corinthians 5.14. Since one died for all, then all died. Since one died for all, all died and alone as in the archpriest alone. This alone is the radical alteration of the universal human situation. Now, let's consider some pretty large passages of Romans. I had the luxury of doing this because we did the hard work of an expanded translation, which I called Targum Romans, uh, quite a while ago. So, first of all, let's take consider this word one now. One and only, or only one, or one, in these passages in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, for example. As it is written, there is not a righteous person, not even one. That's speaking of the mass of humanity in Adam. There is not, says verse 11, not one who understands. There is not one who seeks God. All of them without exception have turned aside. At the same time and altogether they have become worthless. There is not one who does right by acting benevolently. That is not one does good. Not even a single one. And of course this is a quotation or a, at least a partial quotation of Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, which is also found in Psalm 53, 1 through 3, and which we have an allusion to of sorts in Ecclesiastes 7.20. Now, as we've shown, much of the early part of Romans is what we call a dialectic of contradictories between Paul and an opponent an opponent that he was standing face to face with in opposition against, who had brought a gospel to the Romans and to many other churches, including the cluster of churches in Galatia, that this teacher who had a band of teachers underneath him, almost like a Christ with a false band of apostles, had a message by which he proclaimed that people could be justified only by the works of the law that all of humanity was under indictment, which Paul agrees with, under sin and under condemnation. But the opponent of Paul said, the only way out is to be justified or set right by the works of the law. Paul disagreed wholeheartedly and completely with that, of course. So in verse 19 of Romans 3, the opponent says this, and the whole world be shown to deserve God's wrathful judgment. That's what he concludes after the sort of profile of humanity, the survey over all of humanity in Adam. The opponent is quick to say, and the whole world is shown now to deserve God's wrathful judgment. He goes on to say, quoting Psalm 143.2, which is the Septuagint 142.2, he begins to quote, for no human being, that's all flesh or no flesh, 
And the complete Jewish Bible, usually accurate as to sense, has rightly no one alive, no one alive will be justified in his sight. Now, what the opponent wants to say is, all are under the wrathful judgment of God, and deservedly so. Now, we wouldn't really argue with that in one sense. But then he adds this, and he wants to bring in Psalm 143, 2 into the argument. So he says, literally, no one alive or no flesh, literally is all flesh will not be justified in God's sight. The idea is here, no one alive, no human being alive will be justified in God's sight. What he wants to add is that except by the works of the law. Moses' law came in to be the reason that we can get out of that fix, out of that deserving of God's wrath. We do the works of the law. He will recognize, because he's a Jewish Christian, or he's a Christian Jew, we could call him a Jewish Christian, he recognized Jesus came and died for our sins, but it's a marginal thing. It's a sidelined reality to him. He still thinks, given that, we have to do the works of the law to be justified. And so he's ready to say that. But if you see this properly, Paul interjects right in the middle of Romans 3.20. Let's look at it again. The opponent says, and the whole world be shown to deserve God's wrathful judgment. He's having conversation with Paul. Then he goes on and says, for no human being, we could say no one alive, will be justified in his sight. Paul anticipates what he's going to say. He's going to say, except by deeds of the law. So Paul jumps in and interrupts the opponent, and this is how it goes. The opponent says, for no human being or no one alive will be justified in his sight. Paul interjects here and says, by deeds prescribed by the law by the prescriptions listed by Moses in the Pentateuch, in other words, by the moral code of the Old Covenant. And then Paul adds one of the most shocking statements ever in all of his epistles, if not in all the word of God. He says, for through the law comes only the consciousness of sin. Only the consciousness of sin. So the opponent says, through the law comes justification to those who do the works of the law. Paul says, oh yeah, I'll say this. Through the law comes only the consciousness of sin. Not the forgiveness of it. Not justification. And so Paul undercuts the whole argument. He makes what I call the astonishing pivot here. Then, because what does he do in the next verse? He begins to go on and say, hey, now there's a righteousness from God apart from law has been brought forth. And then he goes on to explain how it is enacted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus Christ, one man, the one who died, the one man, Jesus Christ dies, and when he dies, all die. So no one can be justified while alive. And so God made the, the provision that all die in Christ Jesus. And Jesus Christ is the one who is justified on the basis of his own faithfulness. If you rightly translate 326 of Romans, I wish I could go through all this again. I don't have time in this message because we're in Hebrews now. 
And we're not in Kansas anymore. We're in Hebrews now. So Paul interjects this and says, through the law comes only the consciousness of sin, not justification. Justification doesn't come through the works of the law, nor does it come through your or my personal faith in Jesus Christ. It comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who was justified on the basis of his own faithfulness, and when he died, all died, and when he was justified on the basis of his faithfulness, everyone was justified on the basis of Jesus' faithfulness. If I haven't made this point clear enough, then I'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ with a little bit of shame. And so my goal is to make that very clear before I go. So here in Romans 3.20, we have a significant intersection with Hebrews. This statement, through the law comes the consciousness of sin, refers to what Hebrews calls an unpurged conscience. The evil conscience of Hebrews 10.22, the unpurged conscience, the unclean conscience is simply a consciousness of sin. So here in Romans 3.20, we have a significant intersection with Hebrews. This statement, through the law, comes the consciousness of sin, corresponds with Hebrews 10.3, which tells us that in the annual sacrifices offered through the Levitical cultus, there's a built-in reminder of sins. Even when the archpriest once a year goes into the Holy of Holies, there is a reminder of sins year by year. So Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was and still is for many of Israel an annual reminder of sins. What a joyous holiday that is. An annual reminder of sins. Precisely it is that because of the inefficacy of the ritual sacrifices offered under the Old Covenant, that is, by prescription of the Mosaic Law. So the works of the moral code of the law, which were inca are incapable of justifying anyone alive, the works of the moral code of the law, all those commandments associated with the law and with morality and with ethics and with human righteousness, the works of the moral code of the law were incapable of justifying anyone alive. And Hebrews brings in this, the truth, the complementary truth, that the sacrifices offered of the law were incapable of sanctifying anyone. The sacrifices offered through the Levitical cultus, the ritual code of the Old Covenant, were incapable of removing the consciousness of sin which the moral code of the law actually produced. Think of that. I'll say it again. The sacrifices offered in the Levitical cultus, the ritual code of the Old Covenant, were incapable of removing the consciousness of sin, which the moral code of the law actually produced. We might even say that the undesirable condition brought about through the sin-hijacked law was an important part of the situation and the conditions that made the coming of the Messiah and his self-sacrifice in love 
to be precisely timely. I'll say that again. We might even say that the undesirable condition brought about through the sin-hijacked law was an important part of the situation and the conditions that became just right, we could say, that made the coming of the Messiah and his sacrifice in love to be precisely timing. So this drives me to Romans 5. Now, I just want to do this rather superficial reading of Romans 5, 6, all the way through 21. But I want you to note mainly the word one. This is a fanning out of 2 Corinthians 5, 14. The love of Christ now is our driving force, now impels us, controls us, because we have thus judged, we have come to the conclusion that since one died for all, all died. Now we've made that connection. It's not a leap. It's a link. If he died for all and all died, then he who died and was justified in his, by his faithfulness leading to death, then all who died with him were justified by his faithfulness, not our faith. So I want you to just notice this in order to notice the references to one, meaning the one man, Jesus Christ, which in turn will reference manas ho archierus, only the archpriest. Not only was he alone entering into the Holy of Holies, but he was alone on Mount Calvary in the sense that he was the sin bearer and died far from God in one sense, which is why he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Romans 5, 6, in order to understand just what kind of unparalleled love this love of God is, that is the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, in order to understand just what kind, this again is my expanded translation of Romans 5, 6. In order to understand just what kind of unparalleled love this love of God is, consider that while we were on the verge of an irreversible death, that's a death that's far worse than death, it's an eternal death, Christ died. The one who died in 2 Corinthians five fourteen is Christ who died. Just in time is the sense in the Greek here, incidentally. Just in time. Christ died just in time. It's like he comes in to a room and we're on our deathbed. We're just ready to enter into our last expiration, our expiring of life. And he saves us just in time. That's the sense here, the sense of urgency. So... In order to understand just what kind of unparalleled love this love of God is that's been poured out into our hearts, consider that while we're on the verge of an irreversible death, in order to save us from that death, Christ died. Just in time, in behalf of the ungodly. Why does God justify the ungodly? Because Christ died in behalf of the ungodly. God is judge, but as judge, his premier act of justice is justification. He's called God who justifies, Romans 
God who justifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. How's that for a slap in the face of the self-righteous? How's that for a slap in the face of the woke, which is the new self-righteousness? Verse 7, with difficulty, you can cite examples of someone dying for an innocent person. And you may even be able to find even more easily that someone was brave enough to die for a benevolent person, one's benefactor. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still enslaved by and controlled by and colluding with sin, capital S-I-N, Christ died in behalf of us and in our place. That is, going to the place where sin would have brought us finally and everlastingly to an incomprehensible death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. He became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Which correlates with Romans 5.19 as we're going to see shortly. Much more assuredly then, says verse 9... Since we have now been justified by Christ's blood, we have been justified by Christ's blood, that's his redemptive reconciling and rectifying death as God's paschal lamb, we will be saved from the aforementioned wrath, the wrath that the opponent mentioned in Romans 1.18 and 3.19, the wrath that's due to come on all those who deserve it, the whole human race. We've been saved from the aforementioned wrath by the blood of Christ through him. Verse 10, for if while we were, we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his son's death, what if someone doesn't believe in this life? What if someone goes through this life and doesn't believe? What if they're bitter because they've suffered loss and God didn't come through for them? So they didn't believe in God. They hated God. They said terrible things about God. What if they remained enemies with God until the day they died? Well, while they were still enemy, God reconciled them. So what happens when they leave this life not having believed? They go into the everlasting loving care of God. That's what they do. So next time you have to do a funeral or go to a funeral for a so-called unbeliever, think of that instead of thinking of the stupidity of a living hell that people go to hell. God is, the Lord is good to all he has made, to everyone. The Lord is good to everyone, says Psalm 145.9. So let's change that verse because we're good Christians and we're self-righteous Christians. So let's change that. Let's, let's expand that verse. The Lord <clears throat> is good to everyone by throwing many people into an everlasting blast furnace. Think of that. That's the logic of Christianity today. That's the logic of so-called Christendom today. And that's the reason for the flocking away from the church in many cases. If while we, that's the whole world, were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his son's death, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Not only that, we, that's Christians, 
Also, boast in God. We Christians are simply those that have been awakened to the fact of our reconciliation, had faith evoked in us, were baptized into an organic union with Christ, and are now in a life and a livingness of Christ in us being our life. That's the difference. Not only that, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received that reconciliation. That means we've aligned to it, we've agreed with it, we've understood it. The whole world's been reconciled, but we've received that reconciliation. That's the only difference. We've received it. That means we've aligned to the reality of it. The, other, the rest of the world is still reconciled, but they haven't yet received and opened the sealed letter that tells them they're reconciled. Now, in closing, let's consider the many references now, we've set this up now, to one one, only the archpriest and one who died. That's the connection between 2 Corinthians 5.14 and Hebrews 9.7. Consider the many references to one, namely the one Jesus Christ in Romans 5.12-21. to There will be many other references to one, such as the one man Adam, the one sin that he committed, which brought everyone under condemnation and the one righteous act of Jesus Christ. But we're going to concentrate mostly on the one who died, who is the one man, Jesus Christ. Consider this, and it's my translation, a Targumic translation or expanded translation that we developed over the course of many months a few years ago. Therefore, Romans 5.12, through one man, that's Adam, Sin as a cosmic inimical power, that's an adversarial power, entered into the world, and on account of sin, death, and thus death spread like a contagion through all human beings as is clearly manifested by the symptom that everyone sins. That was verse 12. Verse 13, indeed, sin was in the world before the law. That means before the Torah was given through Moses on Mount Sinai. But sin, small s, as an individual transgression, is not charged to one's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, verse 14, death reigned from Adam. Death with a capital D personified, reigned from Adam, through whom sin is a power. Sin as a power came through Adam's sin, came into all the world. So, and Death reigned from Adam, through whom sin as a power came, and death because of sin, until Moses. Moses is the one through whom the law came, which intensified sin's hold on mankind. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's particularly tr particular transgression. Adam's transgression was the violation of a direct divine command. Our sins are either sins of ignorance or sins of cognizance. And so even those that didn't sin like Adam, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam, he, Adam, is a type. That means an anticipation of him, the antitype, Jesus Christ, who was to come. Verse 15, here's where it gets really focused on the word one. However, the free gift is not proportional to the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, the many died, that's all in Adam died, then how much more the grace of God and the gift overflowing to enrich the many. 
that is, with life. By the grace, that means the faithful obedience to the extent of death, the blood of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ, the grace of Christ. By the grace of, look at it, the one man, Jesus Christ. That's the one man, Jesus Christ, who's also the one God and the one archpriest who alone went into the heavenly holy of holies once and for all, having made one offering for all the sins of the whole world of all people once and for all. The one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 15b, it overflowed and superabounded even more to the many. We'll see and have seen and we'll see again. Many here means all of humanity. 16, the unconditional gift is all out of proportion to the one man's sin. In other words, Adam's sin is all out of proportion to God's solution, Jesus' obedience and righteous act. The unconditional gift is all out of proportion to the one man's sin. On the one hand, one sin, one sin, brought judgment resulting in the universal sentence of condemnation to all humanity. But on the other hand, the gift coming after many trespasses, that's uncountable number of sins by all of humanity, brought the universal sentence of acquittal. For verse 17, for if by the trespass of the one, Adam, death reigned through that one, Adam, that one man, how much more? How much out of proportion will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life? Why reign in life? Because death is dethroned. Through the one, through the one, that's the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who we know by Christological concentration is the righteous one of Romans 1.17. Through the one, the one who died is the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one sin came through one sin, as through one sin came condemnation to all people, that's all the sons of Adam, so through the righteous act of one, one who died and in him all died, came the justification of life to all people. That's all the sons of Adam again, Psalm 14 2, Psalm 53 2. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were constituted as sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, that's obedience to the extent of death, friends, in Philippians 2.8, the many, that means all, because we have a Distitch between Romans 5.18 and 19, where the many is interchangeable with the all. The all were constituted as righteous. And that's a reference to Isaiah 53.11. Through the suffering of my righteous servant, the many, or all, will be justified. Verse 20, moreover, the Mosaic law slipped in as a side issue so that the trespass would actually increase but where sin superabounded, grace superabounded much more, thus bringing about a much greater good than if Adam had not disobeyed and if sin had not entered into the human race and spread its plague throughout the human race. To the end that just as sin reigned in death, that's over the whole human race, 
not just the so-called heathen. So grace will reign through righteousness. That's God's saving justice, which will be the subject of increment 290 next Wednesday, resulting in eternal life, a created participation in divine life by the whole human race through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, Remember 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us having judged this. Since one died in inclusive representation of all, then all died. And since no one alive can be justified, then we have to die to be justified. And Christ died and was justified because he's the one who died and was justified in Romans 6.7 and Romans 3.26. Then we died in him and were justified in him as a result of his faithfulness. This one who died and in whom all died is the one man, the second representative man, the inclusive representative of all mankind, Jesus Christ. Consequently, all who were once in the first man, Adam, are now in the second man, Jesus Christ. So when anyone dies, having believed in Christ during his life or not having not believed or believed they go into the care of the great shepherd whom the God affected universal reconciliation through and led him up from the dead I'll say it again consequently all who were once in the first man Adam are now in the second man Christ Jesus if anyone is in Christ and all are there's a new creation so when anyone dies, whether having believed in Christ during this life or not, they go into the care of the great shepherd whom the God who effected universal reconciliation led up from the realm of the dead. Romans and 2 Corinthians are roughly contemporary. And this one who died, this one who justified all, is the one and only archpriest who entered into the heavenly holy of holies after having offered one sacrifice forever. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Hence the title Manas Ho Archieris from Hebrews 9.7. We thank you, Father. May you make these things more eminently clear than any man could, for only the Holy Spirit can make clear what we teach, what we proclaim, what we preach. So we ask that you'll make this clear to all the hearers, for only from the Lord comes the hearing ear and the seeing eye. With our ears, may we hear this message today. With our eyes, may we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Amen.